So if I think about why PBL, I want to jump up and down. PBL is the only program that I have found that can meet my students exactly where they're at, that can streamline their education uh, so rapidly to get them to the point that we need them to be with their competencies to get them into their uh, mainstream classes. It meets the students exactly where they're at and we can simultaneously work in like our language education, our content education, 21st century skills, common core skills, and it's extremely motivating. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How does project-based learning support the diverse language skills of English learners? What is the sustained inquiry process and how can it serve as a first step toward increased student communication and collaboration? How can project-based learning enhance cultural responsiveness and help support English learners as assets to our school communities? We discuss these questions and much more with Elizabeth Leone. Elizabeth is an ESL teacher at Webster Elementary School in Manchester School District in New Hampshire. She works with diverse groups of newcomers from 19 different countries speaking 14 different languages in her program alone. Manchester's English learners make up 23% of the student population, representing 80 different countries and 65 different languages. Elizabeth uses project-based learning as a way to meet learners where they are with their language skills and to rapidly streamline their education to get them into mainstream classes. Using project-based learning strategies, she is able to simultaneously work on language acquisition, content education, and 21st century skills in a way that keeps her young students motivated to learn. Before we get started with our conversation with Elizabeth Leone, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash EL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, blog posts, and articles. And finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening. Here's our conversation with Elizabeth Leone. Elizabeth Leone, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. I am so happy to be here with you. We're happy to have you. So let's get started right away. Um, Like many of the teachers that we work with, you teach in a highly diverse school in Manchester, New Hampshire. There are students from 19 countries who speak 14 different languages. So my first question is, given the complexity of your job and the topic of this podcast interview, why project-based learning? So let me just jump back a little bit and tell you a little bit more about my district. So my district um, has nearly 2,000 English language learners and 23, that makes up 23% of our students in our district. District wide, we have um, students from 80 countries and 65 language uh, represented in the district. So the way that my district runs our programming is that we 
bring our newcomers all to one school. We call it a magnet. Uh, so they get a sheltered instruction uh, experience for a year or two before they get launched out into the mainstream, their mainstream education. Uh, so if I think about why PBL, I, I want to jump up and down. PBL is the only program that I have found that can meet my students exactly where they're at, that can streamline their education uh, so rapidly to get them to the point that we need them to be with their competencies to get them into their uh, mainstream classes. It meets the students exactly where they're at and we can simultaneously work in like our language education, our content education, 21st century skills, common core skills, and it's extremely motivating. I recently had a student, uh, he was here for one year, he's from Venezuela, and he got to speak in front of a panel of 100 administrators, and wow. they asked him, and I, yes, it was such, it, after one year, you know, and you think about not speaking English before that, you know, to be able to converse in front of a whole crowd. Um, so the, one of the questions that they asked him was, um, why do you like projects? And he said, I'm, I'm going to try not to butcher this too much, but he said it, he doesn't like when a teacher just gives him the papers uh, that that's boring for most students and they just want to finish it and get it done. That projects are actually what motivates him to learn. And uh, speak when he was speaking about a project, they had to plan a trip for me. Um, I came in one day in this big dramatic entrance, like I had all this money for my summer vacation, and they went on to plan a full uh, vacation itinerary and place and um, plan for me, which actually met a lot of our content standards for our United States of America mm -hmm. unit that we're required for our district. So it was just a really fun way that they got to experience this new country. Um, and it was, it was extremely motivating for them. Uh, their cognitive engagement was through the roof. And this was our final project of the year. And it was just really beautiful to see start to finish um, what five projects could do for these students. And so I'm sold, I'm sold out. I think that PBL is extremely engaging, communicative, and more so empowering that students feel complete agency and ownership of their learning. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen that on my own as, as my experience as a teacher, although I did not sort of dive in um, to the extent that you are. Um, and I taught high school. And as you know, we did, we did a podcast interview with Donna Neary from Louisville, Kentucky, and she uses PBL with her high school students, students who are um, in danger of not graduating on time. She calls it accelerate to graduate. And so through her and through my own, you know, limited experience with project-based learning, I could definitely see how it could work and meet all students where they are and increase motivation, everything that you're talking about among high school students. And it could be that I'm just sort of ignorant to elementary school students, although I have some of them um, as my own children at home. <laughs> um, but you're, it amazes me that you're doing this with elementary school students, um, which I think some would say, and me and myself included, and again, maybe it's ignorance, that, that it's more challenging. Do you, first of all, do you see that as being the case? And, and then second, for those who are wondering how to make this work, how do you make it work with lower grade um, EL classes in your particular context? 
Yeah. So I loved the podcast with Donna. She uh, had so many good ideas and I love what she's doing with the Accelerate to Graduate. Um, when I was listening, I just, I kept getting so passionate that we're doing the same things. Um, I'm just thinking accelerate to mainstream, like accelerate to the point they need to be to be released into our modern day American schooling. Uh, so so there are going to be challenging aspects. Um, it's more so because my students are newcomers um, rather than aged. It's my job to make it engaging with field trips and technology and make it as colorful and exciting as I can. Um, but, you know, with my target audience being so... Um, much younger, I have to use a lot of like a gradual release of responsibility where I'm modeling something with them. I'm, I am doing something in front of them as a model first and then taking the small steps to do it with them and in like almost a workshop type, uh, I, you know, um, collaborative writing or research or whatever, whatever skill we're working on. And then they're able to go off and do it as their own assignment and project. So there are a lot of times I have to take it very slow and piece by piece for my students. Um, but I just keep thinking that if we start these skills young, especially these, um, something such as like guided research. So every day after research, uh, recess, my students come in and we have a funny little um, Ripley's Believe It or Not uh, fact of the day. And together on our smart screen, we do like this guided research where we'll ask Google and sometimes we end up even on YouTube and um, we do follow-up questions and we learn how to be researchers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, through this little fun, quirky, like sometimes it's like, okay, I don't know if this is true, but like a guinea pig has the best sight. I should have got a real quote, a uh, fact. I don't know. <laughs> That's fine um, with me. But it's some kind of funny fact. And then they have to ask questions. We just start a dialogue and start, researching it. So this for me has um, been such a small little practice and routine that we do, but it's shown me that then when I'm asking my students to research for um, a science fair project or we wrote letters to historical people, um, when they're needing to do research, they actually have some of those pieces and steps in place um, to uh, identify good research, to um, to dive right in. So I don't see it as so much as a challenge um, compared to older grades. I think I just need, as, as the teacher and as a, a teacher in PBL, we just need to take the appropriate steps to break it into bite-sized pieces. Because if kids can build these skills young, imagine where they could be by graduation. Definitely. I mean, and, and it's about knowing your audience, which clearly you do. Um, Absolutely. Yes. You know, the, the, the establishing a routine like you, you just discussed is, is also no small thing either, even though it's a fun little thing. And I love it that it's right after recess when the kids hopefully have gotten a little energy out and ready to do yeah. something <laughs> academic, but also lighthearted. And you're building that in and it's fun. And then when they yeah. go do actual research, they're like, oh, I know how to do this because I looked exactly. up Exactly. It engages their curiosity. For sure. And that's so crucially important, not only for, to build research skills, but obviously to build those language skills, to build collabor uh, collaborative skills as well. And I think so yeah. many people, when they think about project-based learning, they only think about the like end, like the project, like it's all about the yeah. like end piece. And, and I think like some of the research that I've seen and examples that I've seen of project-based learning, frankly, you know, the project at the end sometimes doesn't work out the way that we want, like real life. 
But the God, like the path to it, right? Like everything that you're talking about, particularly with English learners and young ones at that point, that's really the, the magic, isn't it? This is my soapbox. My soapbox is the, it's in the process. It's not in the product. The product is never what I think it's going to be. And I can say, oh, but, but they didn't do this, but they didn't do this. But when I look back at the process, it's beautiful what they actually did get. You know, and, and I'm not saying to do away with rubrics and all the things that we absolutely need and criterias um, to make sure that they're at these competencies, but the product is never, ever what I think it's going to be. Sure. Yeah. You know, and another thing that you mentioned that I think is interesting, and I, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but I have to mention it. You know, you said um, when we release them to the mainstream instead of the accelerate to graduate when we get those students to graduate with the high school students, and then you said, you know, we release them to a modern school system. How beautiful would it be if, if this was <laughs> the modern schools, if they continue oh, yeah. doing things like this? And I just mentioned that because I feel like you starting them early like that what's the appetite a little bit, shows folks that it's possible. And I'm not saying that, that PBL is a magic bullet that's going to solve all education's problems, but certainly um, it's one of those things, particularly with this demographic, um, that we should look at a little bit more carefully. Absolutely. And that's why I'm so passionate about, um, as part of my thesis and a lot of the research I've been doing right now is how to make PBL most accessible for English language learners, and it's fitting perfectly um, with my district because we we have a two project a year minimum that we have to do. We have a grant from uh, Buck Institute. Uh, Buck it used to be Buck Institute. Now it's PBL Works. So mm-hmm. this is something that's very that my district is working towards, which is super exciting because my students would have the uh, components that they need to to succeed in their mainstream classes. Yeah, and we'll link to PBL Works, formerly uh, Buck Institute, because I've heard about them, you know, in a few few different occasions, and I think it is important to kind of have some PD and bring in some expertise when you're attempting something like this. Absolutely, yes. And, you know, you mentioned, like, seeing if this works and uh, and trying it with English learners, and I think there's probably a lot of people listening right now, this is what I'd be thinking if I were listening as a former foreign language teacher, is great, like, this is a great, you know, idea for all students to engage in this kind of thing. But boy, you're working with students who vary so widely in language ability, but yet you argue that PBL can meet them where you are. How do you, how do you navigate the, the variety of, of language ability when just trying to sort of communicate what it is that you're trying to do and get them to kind of communicate what they want to do as well? I know that's a large question, but I'd love to just hear, you know, uh, a general response to that. Um, yeah, absolutely. This is my favorite thing about uh, PBL is that it meets my students exactly at their language proficiency. So if we look at WIDA and like their four language domains, you know, the speaking, the listening, the reading, the writing, I can tailor each of those four to exactly where that student is. Or I, I follow Krashen's um, comprehensible input, which is I, their instructional level, plus one. So giving them a little baby step, an obtainable next step for them uh, to, to meet until they get to competency, right? So just taking those baby steps. So in each of those language domains, if I can just stretch them a tiny, tiny bit um, in a tailored way to them, like I have students who come in and they can read and write beautifully, but they don't have um, either the confidence or the ability to speak for, for months. Sure. And then I have students who come and 
Um, I'm giggling because I can picture them right now. They can chat, 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 and yeah, they would yeah. think that they're native speakers, and they still can't. They're still preliterate for reading and writing. Um, so with PBL and with these projects, I'm giving a great big question and task, and then through the um, sustained inquiry process, they're getting the text and um, their assignments and it's all geared exactly to where they are and I can scaffold them where they're at. So scaffolding builds those bridges so that it makes the task more manageable and achievable. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what makes PBL successful is that we can go right to a student's level. So knowing them, you said that before, like you have to know every one of your students and where they're at. And it's really a juggling act to be uh, this mentor, this coach for them to take their next steps and find the right materials. But they're really the ones who hold the power. Right. And I would argue that you need to know that anyway. And if you have the right tools and the right leadership in place to be able to kind of access the data and then get to know your students on a personal level, you're doing that anyway. And so the project is the other piece of it. Talk Talk to us a little bit about the sustained inquiry process. I want to make sure that listeners understand what that is. So the standing inquiry process is really your instructional, the instructional portion of your project. So it's um, one of the projects that we do that comes to mind is I like to have my students plan a party. It's just always a fun way. Um, we actually do a holiday party so we can talk about different holiday winter traditions, mm-hmm. um, both in our country and in their countries. And then they plan a party. So down to, we have to make proposals to the PTO for how much money we need. We need to budget for the food. We make decorations. We make invitations. Who do we invite? How many people can we fit in our classroom? We do a little performance. So there's different committees for all of these things. So that whole work block that you can imagine, everything that goes into the project um, is that sustained inquiry. What do we need to learn? What do we need to inquire about? to make this product happen. Yeah, and that's a that's like a life skill. <laughs> I mean, Absolutely, they're all life skills, and that's why it works. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so aside from the language ability, I mean, you must have students who come in that are newcomers and maybe SIFE students, students with maybe limited educational experience or, or a very different educational experience. Um, First of all, I'm curious if that's the case. And second, if it is, how does PBL help support that sort of transition into, you know, a new environment, whether that be their community and, of course, their school and academic life as well? Yeah, so my, all of my students are refugees and immigrants. Um, so the yes majority, to the first question. <laughs> absolutely to the first question. The majority of them are SPLIFE students with limited or interrupted formal education. Um, I actually had students for the first time this year who had never been in school. As a fourth grader, had never been in any type of educational experience whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, the task grows. So not only did every one of my students have different language Um, proficiencies in each of the four domains, but they also have such a variation in their educational experiences. Um, So I do so much modeling in my classroom. I feel like the projects um, are directly linked to what they know and where they're at, but I do need to create, first of all, a safe enough environment for them to learn. 
for them to want to learn, to them, um, to feel excited to get engaged because that's where the risks are going to start to the, those, um, academic risks are going to start to take place where mm -hmm. they're comfortable enough to like open their minds to, to what we're doing. So yes, a big part of my job in my classroom right now is, is that. And so what I've done and some of the work I've been doing is to work on these PBL readiness skills. So not only plan these big, grandiose projects that are fantastic and, you know, we're going to the mayor's office and we're all over town, but like the day-to-day these are the skills that I want my students to obtain. And I love when Donna said, she said, English is not the end, it's the means to the end. So they're learning all these life skills. They have to, for, for the most part, use English in the process. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're coming out with these 21st century skills. And so even down to the problem solving and... Um, I'm giving, so even down to like the problem solving and the creating and all those higher order thinking skills, I'm modeling them and scaffolding them. So for example, I, one of the PBL readiness skills is communicating, like so super simple. It's collaboration and I want my students to have on topic conversations. So this is really nice. This is like asking questions. This is being able to debate an idea. But debating an idea often starts with two students are yelling at each other because yeah. they don't agree about where they're going or what's next or with whatever. Right. And even this makes me smile. Yeah. How do, you, how do you disagree without being disagreeable? Life skill. Well, exactly. And they're talking. Right. They're talking. They're from two different countries and they're having to yell at each other in English. Like <laughs> we're getting somewhere here. Um, but it's, it's walking with them to find the more effective ways to communicate. But my students are comfortable enough to A, use the language, confident enough in their own ideas and what they think. There's definitely some next steps here in like figuring out the more appropriate way to talk to each other, to debate an idea, but we had the first step. Yeah. So um, that like negotiating for meaning is happening, you know? So I love to keep my students in this productive struggle mode as we're working because as even with the problem solving, the self-management, the critical thinking, um, I won't give them the answer. Miss, miss, I don't, I don't know where to find the word chair. And I'll say, oh, I don't know either. Like, let's figure this out. And together, you know, helping uh, coach out and pull out their ideas, letting them form the answer. So even for these students with little educational experiences, I... I think that there is a huge opportunity there to grow their life skills and their 21st century skills and the things that as adults and, and high schoolers and college students, like we need students to have the things that are actually going to make them successful in school. We can learn anything, but this, you know, the art of collaboration is so key for students who haven't been in an educational experience. So. I, I definitely value um, the educational 
work for my SPLIFE students. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you, t- you said a lot there, but the, you, you finally said the, the expression that I was kind of thinking in my head and I was going to mention, but you did as well, that productive struggle, like being able to be, and you've mentioned this a few times or, or alluded to it, um, being able to give the students just enough to know them well enough or you can give them just enough that they're, they're, they're pushing themselves and they're learning. It's like exercise, right? You got to hurt a little bit. Yes. Um, because I think all of us have the experience of just maybe you, you, you go to the gym or go for a walk or a run and you kind of go through the motions, but then when you're pushed a little bit, yeah. you start to see results. Um, and, and it's the same with students. It's just, it's difficult to do that. You really have to know um, who, who these students are. And that, that kind of leads me into my next sort of a two part question here. I know, you know, for me, um, and I know for you as well, a big part of project-based learning is, is like, you got to kind of set the authenticity of it. It's got to be real, the projects that you do. And from what you've talked about, they, they're, they're real and they really like, you know, they, they fit in nicely with what the students want to do. But then you kind of couple that with the fact that you have students from all over the place with many different um, backgrounds and, and linguistic abilities. And now we're into the whole like cultural responsiveness piece. Like, so my, I guess my question is, you know, what's the best way to go about making sure that projects uh, or even the processes that you're, that you're setting out on are authentic given the diversity of students that you have and all their different interests based on all their different experiences, which it must be compounded incredibly when you have students from so many different places as opposed to just a, a you know, homogeneous group of students. Absolutely. Authenticity is a really funny thing in my classroom um, because I love to use real world examples and experiences and bringing in a chef if we're learning about um, recipes or food, you know, and bringing in people from the community and engineers. So I, I really value real world experiences, but authenticity itself for my students is really hard to create because when they're coming in, none of this quite feels authentic to them. It all feels still like a fairy tale. And um, even a pencil, you know, for my students who've never been in, in a school before, even like a pencil elicited this, oh, miss, thank you, thank you moment. Um, right, right. So it's all a little bit mystical for our newcomers. And um, like we think of with your kids and my kids and Maybe recipe reading and writing is very authentic. And then the chef comes in and it's very authentic. And they go home and they make this HelloFresh with their parents. And that's what we'd call like an authentic experience in mainstream. My Swahili students don't know. Recipe is the most unauthentic thing they've ever heard of. Um, They they have traditions passed down and they eat what they had. And um, so this is absolutely a challenge. So it really depends on a student's culture and past. And so I love that you said brought in cultural responsiveness because that's where I let my students share the asset of who they are and the asset of their own culture and community. So making them feel safe enough to do this and giving them the opportunity to share aspects of themselves because my students always want to tell stories about their past and their culture and using this to fuel academic discussions, to create curriculum and projects that are based on who they are and where they can have a voice and choice in um, leveraging their diversity to propel their learning and the learning of the rest of the class. So 
one example of this, we did um, community assetting and we, now I, I can, most of us, right? All of us teachers, I'm not gonna like fool anybody. Community assetting, we, we look at community and who are the people in our community and what is in our community. And some of this does look like flashcards and going to the fire station and meeting them. And mm-hmm. um, I don't mean flashcards. I mean, we do um, like charades with cards and it's, it's the sustained inquiry process has elements of what people would expect in a normal community unit. Sure. Um, but getting them out there into the community and meeting the people and um, pretending to be them. And at the end of our community project, we do community uh, city proposals to the mayor. And so we're able to see what our community Manchester has and say maybe um, one of my students doesn't have a halal store close enough to their home, um, that the bags are, this is, this is a real quote, the bags are too heavy. So it, mm-hmm. that tells me it's not close enough. So they want, she wrote a proposal about what, that she wanted a halal store closer, like within a block of her house. Um, now so is this really possible? No, but she felt so empowered and so strong to be able to write this to the mayor. Other students are talking about soccer fields and such, but um, it's they're able to bring a voice from their home, from their culture, from who they are to, to the project. So well, our community, they've never seen a fire station before isn't authentic, exactly. They're able to connect it to the culture that they're from. Yeah, and I mean, you, you must be able to use the whole mystifying nature of everything as an advantage as well. I mean, that's got to be oh, both <laughs> both scary, like both, both totally horrifying and like the most exciting thing ever. So yes. Every being day able to, I, I think just being able to recognize that as silly as it may sound as a teacher that like, you know, these students, and I think, I think a lot of teachers who aren't in the situation that you are, uh, in and and you sound like delighted to be in it and, and you should be because you're working with a very special group of students and I know you feel that way but I feel yeah. like many other students many other teachers uh, don't really think of it that way you know and that's why it's nice to get this this out into the world to, to for people to understand that, like that word mystifying is just so you know when we talk about authenticity well what yeah. is authenticity for a student who's never been in school before and yeah. has never like walked <laughs> a city block I think that's 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 really interesting. And then, you know, you mentioned the voice and choice piece, which which I think is great and something that like I think we should all strive to do as teachers no matter who we teach. But like myself, you know, I had a when I sort of did my little foray into PBL, I had a hard time with the kind of structure and agency piece, right? Like you, yeah. I couldn't let students do whatever they wanted or it would be a total disaster. I mean, I wouldn't be able to kind of know what was going on at all but I couldn't control it so much that they didn't have any choice. So where's the sweet spot with your group of students there? What, like, are there two or three things that you do? I'm sure it's not that simple, but you know, <laughs> a little piece of advice that you can give us to kind of thread that needle between structure and agency so that you have an idea of what everyone's doing and they're on the right path, but they also have that choice, especially given that these are little ones, a lot of them. Yeah. So as a project-based learning coach, this is the most, this is what I hear as the most challenging for teachers who not surprising. Yeah. Yeah. Get into PBL. Um, I'm not going to give much hope. It's very messy and it's very loud. 
I just, can I just tell you, I appreciate, I really appreciate your honesty. You said, you said that. And then you also said earlier, authenticity is really hard to create. And that's like a breath of fresh air, but but go on. Sorry. Continue. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, um, sometimes I used to get embarrassed when I would have an administrator or another teacher come in if we're in the middle of the project and say, those two students that I'm very proud of for communicating their ideas are yelling at each other. Um, An example of the loudness and the messiness. And I let my students maybe make some mistakes. Uh, Not maybe, definitely. It's it's embarrassing to say, but like I let them have an experience where we can say, I can come back and say, okay, what could we do better next time? What, what didn't work? What could we do to make this work? There's an Italian word, systemare, where I, I teach my students from the very beginning that uh, not everything is going to work, but what, what can we do next? What is the next step? Um, so I try to keep, if, there, if I have to go back to your like one, two, three, what are my things that I do? I keep activities as engaging as possible. Um, and like, I, like we just touched on, my, I don't have that much trouble with kids getting bored. Uh, with my students because they are so new and so excitable and mm-hmm. I, my projects are awesome. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I also set up very clear checkpoints that you're either going to meet with me at this day and time and we're going to have a coaching mentoring session um, or I need to have this in by this date and a certain portion of a project and uh, so I set up these checkpoints to monitor the process, and that really helps. I can see where they're at. And mm-hmm. so a good example of why this is so important is we were doing a poetry unit based on Sharon Creech's book, Love That Dog. And I always have to work this in somewhere because it's one of my absolute favorites. And so we look at different poets and poetry, and they have to write their own poetry. So I noticed and it wasn't even about poetry. A student was having trouble at the end. She was sending her poems to Sharon Creech. She was having trouble writing a paragraph. Just, she was a newer student. I get students all year. So she was like, she came in mid-year and um, I said, okay, we have to stop here. It was a checkpoint. I realized she's having trouble putting sentences cohesively together, like in our American, you know, our normal grammatical paragraph structure. Mm-hmm. So I sat down, I pulled a small group and I realized, you know, Joe, Joey and Susie and um, Martha need this paragraph, little mini sustained inquiry lesson. And um, so together we talked about what is a paragraph and we looked it up different paragraphs in books and text and um, identified some characteristics and then you know, by the end, they were able to write paragraphs for their letters. So if I hadn't, if I didn't have checkpoints and if I didn't have rubrics and stopping points along the way, I could have easily missed that and got to the end and they would have not, you know, even if I have a rubric for the end, they wouldn't have met it. Yeah. So I definitely need those checkpoints. It's a great point. And I, there's two, two things that I'd say to follow up there. One is just like being like any good manager would do, no matter sort of where you are and what you're doing for work or in, you know, in academics, you have to have those checkpoints. And the other thing is, this is just more evidence that 
you know, the process in many ways is more important than the end product. Absolutely. And if you don't, yeah. you don't have those checkpoints and I, I'm guilty of it. That's the lesson number one, I think for me, for, for, you know, engaging in any kind of project based activity from day one of teaching is that you can't just let them go. You know, you have to have those checkpoints and I would say particularly more for this group of students. That's, that's helpful with the structure and agency piece. Yeah. And I would also like to mention that at the end, having a final product though, that they have to, to hold in their hands, like metaphorically and say, this is what I learned. This is the demonstration of my knowledge. And, um, usually sometimes we'll do them public presented some in different ways. They want to have confidence in their final product. So any, um, I let them have a, with the voice and choice, I let them have a lot of agency, which in turn gives them more confidence in themselves. Uh, but at the end, this whole like self-assessment idea where they're, I want them to be really proud of the work that they did and be able to say, I met these competencies. I met these competencies, not my teachers saying I met them. I want them to know what they did was good right. and why. Yeah, absolutely. So. And that, it's important, you know, to reflect and just understand sort of where everything they've learned, even if, you know, if, if, if it's great at the end and it's this wonderful thing, they're going to treasure forever, whatever the project may be great. And if it fell short of what their expectations were, it, it doesn't matter. It's just understanding what was met um, yeah. along the way. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple more questions. One is if someone's listening to this right now and is like, all right, this sounds great. What are the first steps? What do I, like, I'm totally new at this. I've been teaching sort of traditionally for 20 years, but like Elizabeth, you've convinced me I want to take the first step. What, what would you, where would you point that person? Project-based learning, Buck Institute, PBL Works has kind of established this whole guideline to the parts of a project. And that is really wonderful. And I've used that on so many occasions. But for somebody starting out, using any small bit, small part of this PBL project model is going to be highly effective and open. Sorry. So she has real life from a school. <laughs> um, so using any piece of this project-based learning model is going to, I believe, launch your students into more confidence, more engagement, um, more conversation, whether you're teaching them. So I, I said the PBL readiness skills that I'm working with, working on with my students. Some small units that I do, I am just merely focusing on one of these skills that I want them to have for a greater project later. Mm-hmm. So um, starting small and adding the PBL elements small. Try one with one unit. Try another with another unit. Um, All of them are extremely student-centered. Asking your students what they want to learn and letting them have a voice and an opinion about what they're going to do to show that knowledge. For, you know, because a lot of us have districts where they're really strict about what we need to learn. Um, but if a student has an idea, maybe they don't want to write a paper, they'd rather use a green screen and film something, mm-hmm. um, giving them that opportunity to say, I can show you this, but in my own way. Yeah. The, you know, it's the first step might be, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but just what, what I'm hearing from this and what I've seen in my own, you know, almost 20 years experience in education is like, you have to be willing to relinquish control a little yeah, bit, yeah. right? And you have to kind of be like, 
maybe the sage on the stage approach and me like controlling everything and that I guess that's an extreme scenario, but it's not super uncommon. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe I should let go of that a little bit. And I suppose you also have to have um, support, you know, in your school and, uh, and yes. with your leadership, because I can relate to you when I, you know, I've had a variety of different principals and department chairs and people who are evaluating me walk into my room when it was totally chaotic because students mm-hmm. were conversing, even if they were conversing in Spanish, which is what they were supposed to do in my class. Yeah. You know, it looked very chaotic. And I can say that like one principal would walk in and give me the look like, what are you doing? <laughs> Another principal would be like, right on, like, keep, this is great. This is the best thing ever. Yeah. And another one would be like, what is going on in here? Like, so you have to yeah. kind of have, that's just so important to have that leadership in place. But I think if you can, if you can add elements into it and kind of show, even if it's just the teacher next door, come in and say, Hey, what are you doing? And that seemed really interesting. Start a little spark and then, you know, becomes, becomes a movement. So that's, that's, I think it's really good advice. Yeah. And, um, I know you're going to ask me after, but even, Online, there's a ton of project ideas. So there's a lot of resources out there for, and I mean, you, you will send my information. I'd love to be in touch with anyone. So starting small and getting in touch with somebody who can, you know, walk you through it and tell you it's okay because I, this is my third, I've had three years teaching PBL. This will be my fourth. And I've had projects that were total fails, like mm-hmm. by the total flops in the end, there was definitely gold nuggets in the the process uh but in the end they were a bit messy and that can be discouraging for teachers especially when we've been so trained um to teach by the books to teach to i I hate to say this but teach to a test um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways you we take that failure on ourselves and yeah and we need the support of others around us to kind of bring us up i think that's that's crucial so before you get into that, how can people get in touch with you and learn more about what you're doing? One more question before I get into that. That's important as well. But I want to know, um, I ask this question to everybody that comes on the podcast, and I have this like really great list of books and resources um, that I use personally and selfishly on my own, but I'm hoping others use it as well. <laughs> and that is, yeah. is there a book or a resource that has influenced you either personally or professionally that, that you'd like to share with others? Um, so I have a couple. So I keep I keep tagging PBL Works. They're fantastic. They previously were Buck Institute. Um, that's who I did all my training with, and um, they're constantly putting out information on their social medias and on their website. Uh, they just did a great equity talk with uh, Pedro Nuajara, and that was fantastic. Um, equity is a hard thing, as even in PBL. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Teach Like a Pirate by David Borges and start with the why. Oh, I'm almost done reading this for the second time. I It's one of my favorite books in teaching, in life, the why. It's crucial. It's crucial. It makes us, I, maybe it's going far out there, but it makes us live another day. Yeah. Why we're, you know, so. I always love the bo- the books that can help us in both teaching and life. And if that's one, I have not read it. So I will add that one to my list as well. Yeah, it's fantastic. And then you already started to tell us a little bit about this, but I'd love to know how people can learn more about the work that you're doing. We'll link to that article that you wrote, but if you could tell us a little bit about that. And also if you know, you'd know you like people to get in touch with you, how, how they go about doing that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Smart Break article um, that I read just came out in July. I also have an uh, Instagram handle that I use as like an educational blog for what we're doing in our classroom. Uh, it is at MissMS.Leone, L-E-O-N-E dot E-L-L dot squad, S-Q-U-A-D. And um, people can get on in touch with me on there. I love, I, I have a small um, group of people that I work with internationally. I love to get in touch with people around the world or nationally to talk PBL and uh, give advice and ideas and share, you know, both ways. So yes, I'd love for people to reach out. Great. That's awesome. And I can absolutely speak to both the Smart Brief article, which is how I learned about the work that you're doing and how this podcast episode actually happened because I came across that article. And I now uh, follow you on that Instagram page. And it's one of the, it's actually, to be honest, one of the few educational things that I follow on my Instagram page, which is more for like my my, my property and the things I do there. But that is uh, wonderful. And it's just really a nice addition to my feed. So, um, So that's great. So we'll put all that information out there for folks to find um, your book recommendations as well as um, how to get in touch with you. And um, I just wanted to, to take the opportunity to thank you so much, not only for coming on the podcast, but for all of the great work you're doing um, in Manchester and New Hampshire, which is in my state, which makes it even sweeter. So thanks so much for everything you do. Absolutely. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.